welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. I guess we're going to start out by thanking our Patreon contributors. Um, I'm going to do that today. Uh, I'd like to thank Carla, Thomas, Morgan, Daniel, L, Eileen, sorry, Christy, uh, Peter, thank you, George. Those are from the previous week. We, we kind of had an issue last time, so those are from that week and now we have new ones from this week um douglas fran andrew drew he, i think he said hey to us on twitter he did hey drew hey uh thomas jeff adam chris and today we got one from the horror honeys <laughs> yeah i also want to give a shout out to the horror honeys um they have a podcast i just subscribed to it um so i'm gonna i'm gonna check that out probably uh, tomorrow when I'm at the gym. So oh, cool. Hey ladies. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you guys. Cool. Really. All right. Appreciate it. Yeah. <clears throat> do you have any news you want to get off your chest? Or I you... do not have any news. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I don't. Um, I'm really excited about the episode we're going to do today. Uh, this episode, I wouldn't say I'm personally connected to it so much as a few degrees always connected to it. Um, my drug dealer was in jail with the subject of the, uh, podcast today. Such a star fucker. <laughs> I'm such a star fucker. All the people I fuck are total fucking losers. Um, Rachel only fucks drug dealers to the stars. <laughs> um, he also, uh, the, just the lifestyle sort of, and the people that this guy was surrounding himself with just was very similar to a lot of the people I was hanging out with at one point in time and also this story much of the story takes place in Santa Barbara which is where I was living and selling drugs before I got sober so I I've always felt sort of I don't know if soft spot spot is the word for this but right. like a connection to this case in a in a remove a slightly removed way right do you know right. what I mean yeah definitely um so we are of course talking about Jesse James Hollywood uh, he is a man that uh, the 2006 movie Alpha Dog, starring Emile Hirsch and Justin Timberlake, was based on. It, and and I and I gotta say, for as far as biographical movies go, they did a really good job making it pretty accurate to what actually went down, even down to things that characters in the movie that that players in this case actually said words they actually said uh they did a pretty good job depicting uh like casting with the actors specifically i think um the choice to cast ansel engort is that how you pronounce his name oh is that the guy from baby driver he no he's someone who passed uh, oh no, Anton Yel Yelchin. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I can't believe I got his name wrong right now. Um, Anton Yelchin. Is that how yeah. you pronounce his name? He um, he plays uh, the Nick Markowitz character, who uh, was of course the victim in this case. I thought they did a really good job casting him. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about about that uh, later on, but this is going to be a two part episode because this case is just thick chopped full of details and there's a lot of different uh players in this so try and keep up uh, i'm gonna do the best i can to you know keep all there's there's two jesse's in the story by the way so i'm I, i'm gonna refer to the main guy just by jesse most of the time but his friend jesse rouge will be always jesse rouge just to make that distinction okay. to get that out of the way thank you um sorry i'm very nervous about doing this episode because i've been looking forward to it for so long but Without further ado, here is Jesse James Hollywood, part one. So Jesse James Hollywood, that is his real name, by the way. His last name is Hollywood? His last name is Hollywood. What nationality is that? <laughs> Douchebag. I don't know. I, 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 that's what it's, it doesn't say born such and such. It right, doesn't, there's no other. His father's name is Jack Hollywood. Right. I don't know if that's a decision his father changed his name to at some point right. maybe in so the he 60s. was born with that name but it's possible his dad changed it at exactly some point. Yeah. i mean you really couldn't pick a better sort of outlaw name than jesse james hollywood for the modern era right. i feel like i mean it's so over it's the top for like the entourage generation 
<laughs> right. It's so over the top and ridiculous. And um, actually, the he's played, like I said before, Emil, ha- Emil Hirsch plays this character in the movie Alpha Dog. And Emil Hirsch's character's name isn't even as good in the movie. Oh, so the characters' names are different. They're the, in the, movie? the only the major differences between the movie and reality is that the characters' names are different, and instead of taking place partially in Santa Barbara, it takes place in uh, Palm Springs. Right. So all the characters' names are different, but they really did a, a good job sticking to the story. Okay. So uh, the character in uh, Alpha Dog, his name is Johnny True Love. So I feel I don't know about you, but I feel like Jesse James Hollywood is even more right over the top name than yeah. Johnny True Love. Well, they clearly probably didn't have to want to pay rights for something, right? Like that's probably why I, they changed the name. I guess so. I don't know. So Jesse James Hollywood was born January 28th in West Hills, California to Jack and Lori Hollywood. For those of you who don't know, West Hills is an upper middle class white, very white community in the northernmost part of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. The youth baseball scene is also really big in this part of L.A. and they boast state of the art uh, stadiums and fancy electronic scoreboards and so jesse spent a lot of his youth playing baseball as a pitcher and a third baseman and he was really good at it his father jack was a little league coach and as a teen jesse uh was still playing baseball and he got pretty into taking supplements and getting swole at the gym jesse also attended the prestigious el camino real high school where he ended up being expelled for cursing out a teacher Now, I read that this altercation occurred over the fact that this teacher, this administrator, didn't like that Jesse was wearing a tank top to school, like a wife beater. Uh So they got into a huge fight at that, and Jesse was like, yo, go fuck yourself. I'm wearing this sick-ass wife beater to school. I'm a tough guy. I'm Jesse James Hollywood, bitch. (laughs) Yeah, don't you know who I am? I'm a star pitcher and third baseman. I can't even imagine putting up that much of a fight to wear a wife beater. (laughs) Well, I felt like it was important to to tell that story because right. that's that's just a little window into who this guy so is. So he's always kind of a dick. He was always a dick. He was always a tough guy. He was always concerned about maintaining an image of being a tough guy and a cool guy. So he ended up getting expelled from this prestigious high school and he wound up finishing high school at Calabasas High and he graduated in 1998. Now, most of Jesse's friends and associates were kids that he had played baseball with growing up. And these kids like to do the normal teenage thing. They like to party. They like to smoke weed. But by 1999, Jesse was not only selling weed, but running a very successful little drug ring in West Hills. And he went on to recruit all his high school baseball friends to sell for him. And he started making a lot of money at a very young age. And by the time he was 19, he ended up buying his first home, which was located in West Hills, just blocks away from his parents' house where he grew up. So you can only imagine just sort of the ego this guy must have had to be not only this, you know, mini drug kingpin in town, but he also has his own house at age 19. Right. You know, Guys look up to him. The girls want to fuck him. He was definitely a ladies' man. He wasn't an unattractive guy. He was a cute guy, you know? Um, And Jesse was very image conscious, like I said before. He really cared about milking sort of his status as a drug dealer. I'm sure, I'm almost positive that he had a Scarface poster on his wall in real life. In the movie, Alpha Dog, Jesse James Hollywood did have a Scarface poster on the wall, and I'm almost positive that he did too, because literally every suburban drug dealer I've ever met in my life has a Scarface poster. They all worship Tony Montana. Yeah, and it's like that didn't end well for him. And also, Tony Montana was like pushing some real weight. You're just pushing weed. Right. So don't get it twisted. <laughs> and it, like I said before, it did not end well for Tony Montana. No. But they all love Scarface. They all love that. Yeah. It's kind of a red flag if a guy loves Scarface. Like, that's his favorite movie. Right. I think you can like it. But you don't want to date a guy whose favorite movie is Scarface. And you know what? I famously said before that when I went into the um, drug dealing bitch business, and I say that because I really was a bitch. I was an indentured servant. 
to my drug dealer. Were you a trap queen? I was, I was a trap. <laughs> I, yes, tech by technical terms, I was a trap queen, but it was not glamorous. I really thought that my life was going to be sort of like Elvira from, um, Scarface, which is Michelle right. Pfeiffer's character, right. except it was more like Wendy from uh, Breaking Bad, the prostitute right. that hangs around the motels. That was really more what my oh, life yeah, sort yeah. of looked like. <laughs> and that's sort of what I looked like, too, at that time. <laughs> you to were be... pretty ragged in some of those. Yeah. I mean, you were like cute, but. <laughs> right. Because I was still 19 and 20 years old. Yeah, but you were but... like 70 pounds. I... <laughs> I mean, it was really bad. Like I did. I, I, I was pretty tore up. You looked happy. <laughs> I know you weren't. <laughs> You know what? There were some, some of those pictures. You're smiling. <laughs> the one famous picture of me that got post, I got tagged in a photo like two years ago from my drug days. And this was a photo that was taken of me like just months before I got sober. So I'm just at like the lowest rock bottom that a human being can get. And I am smiling and throwing my head back and laughing. But you look at me and you're like, you're going to break in half if I even touch you. And I think I've seen that where you're like on a lawn chair or something. Yeah, yeah, I'm on a lawn chair with a cigarette and I'm wearing tiny shorts and my Adidas shell toes. And I'm just like, ah, you know, and it's <laughs> not cute at all. Um, but kind of cute because it's like, oh, you're going to have to go to rehab. <laughs> it's I mean, all going to come. We know it worked out. But. Right. It worked out in the end, but it was bad. So anyway, um, so Jesse was uh, really conscious of, of perpetuating this image, and he really liked buying flashy, tricked-out cars. And some of his cars even had hydraulics and rims on it. And he... Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, like, this is, this is sort of the kind of guy that he was. Now, the friends that were working under him were Jesse Rouge, who I mentioned before, William Skidmore, and Brian Affronti. Among Jesse's associates was also a man named Ryan Hoyt. I should say boy. I mean, man, boy. They're all like, yeah, they're, they're man all, boys. Yeah. They're man boys. And he was the bitch of the crew. He wasn't necessarily a friend of Jesse's, but he hung around because he owed Jesse a lot of money. And so Jesse, just like I said before, was in, you know, with myself, he was also indebted to his drug dealer. So he was sort of ordered around in order to pay for his debt, he was ordered around to clean the house and right. do errands and do whatever that uh, Jesse said. He wasn't considered part of the crew so much as the crew's bitch. Right. And Ryan just dutifully did whatever Jesse said. He was probably afraid of him. He also idolized Jesse in that way because he wanted to be cool with these guys and he obviously needed to get rid of his debt. And, and look, let me just say this. I know weed can be addictive, but I cannot imagine being so, um, spending so much money on weed that you're indebted to someone to the point where you're an indentured servant right? with them. I can't, look, I had a problem with weed when I was a teenager. I think weed totally can be addictive. I just, I just, you usually picture that scenario with someone who's addicted to cocaine or heroin or something that's incredibly physically addictive so i just thought that was kind of interesting like my god like how much of a fucking loser stoner were you yeah like i mean yeah that you owe that much money for weed and i'm sure he didn't you know he obviously didn't owe as much money as one would owe for cocaine for cocaine yeah. but he owed enough that he became jesse's bitch maybe his snack bill was part of the deal <laughs> And I've spent over $300 at 7-Eleven <laughs> for you. Now that can happen. I feel like that is more of a cost with weed is like right. the weird shit that you buy when you're Ooh, high. It's just all wasted because you don't want to eat it when you're sober. <laughs> right. Jesse's other friend working for him as a drug dealer was Ben Markowitz. Now Ben Markowitz was a childhood friend of Jesse's who played baseball in the same league as him. They grew up less than a mile away from each other. And he was about two years older than Jesse. Now, like Jesse, Ben was also a problem kid. But he had some rage issues. He was a lot more, acted a lot more methy. Right. Like, Ben was taking some drugs other than just weed. And he was definitely an alcoholic. Ben would get into all kinds of trouble as a teenager. Examples, he 
slashed tires on cars. He got in trouble for beating someone with brass knuckles when he was 15. And he was also expelled from the same high school, El Camino Real, for assaulting a girl who threw a milk carton at him. So Ben Markowitz had a pretty bad reputation around town. He was pretty sketch. Yeah. Now, if you've seen the movie Alpha Dog, you know that Ben is played by Ben Foster, who happens to be one of my favorite actors of all time. And Ben Foster's performance, let me just tell you, is so fucking fantastic and beautiful. You just need to watch the movie just for that performance alone. It is so good. The w- He's good at like psycho. He's really good at psycho. I've been a fan of Ben Foster's since the <clears throat> mid 90s when he was on this Canadian preteen show that they used to play on the Disney Channel called Flash Forward. Jewel State was in it for all you nerds who love Jewel State. She's pretty cool too. Um, anyway, I just I just adore Ben Foster. I can't say enough good things about him and he's fantastic in this movie. They did such a good job casting. Now Ben's parents were divorced when he was four and by the time he was 12 he was living with his dad Jeff and his stepmom Susan full time. Ben's half-brother Nick who was uh, was born September 19th, 1984. So Jeff and Susan Markowitz were well aware that their son, Ben, had problems. And like any loving parents, they wanted to help him. They wanted to get him help. And, you know, he went to all sorts of therapists and doctors. He was even on Ritalin at one point. But it, it was sort of like this situation, especially when you have an alcoholic teen or an alcoholic child, it, it, it's like impossible. It's fucking impossible. <clears throat> right. And they're just going to run through your life no matter what you do. I know that was my experience with my parents who had to deal with me. Like I got kicked out of my house the day I turned 18. Right. That's, that's, you know, I relate to this guy a lot. I didn't beat anyone with brass knuckles ever, but I was essentially this type of problem child. So my parents were like, yeah, you don't live here anymore, like at all. Um, and they had it. They should have done that. That's right. absolutely what they should have done. I was a fucking nightmare. I was a terror. Uh, so this was the experience with Ben and and Susan, his stepmother, really wanted to protect her son Nick, who was Ben's half brother, from Ben. You know, uh-huh. she didn't want Nick Markowitz to be running with the same crew, to be getting in the same trouble, to be influenced by him in any way. So she sort of really tried to keep them separate, you know, and for good reason. Right. Like there's no, I totally understand where she was coming from. But Nick, of course, idolized his older brother. He thought he was really cool and he really looked up to him and all he wanted to do was hang out with him and probably hang out with his friends. And, you know, what's my older brother up to? Um, you know, and, and Nick, even though Nick would like show up drunk, Nick actually showed up drunk. I'm sorry, not Nick. Ben actually showed up drunk at Nick's bar mitzvah and caused a big fucking scene. And he showed up in his Impala because of course. Yeah. And he was like, come with me, come with me. And he's wasted trying to get Nick in the Impala driving around drunk with him. I don't know if they ended up actually leaving together, but you know, that's who this guy was. He was the, uh, he was the classic alcoholic running through everyone's lives like this. Um, and another interesting thing to note about, uh, Ben Markowitz is that, you know, this was a Jewish family. Ben ended up joining a gang at one point that had white supremacist leanings, which I thought was interesting, sort of not that he didn't like his Jewishness. It was sort of more just like, I'm in a fucking, I need to be in a gang, right? you know, um, in the movie Alpha Dog. Ben Foster's shirt is off a lot because he's like a crazy, sweaty, methy guy. So his shirt's off a lot. So you can actually see he has a tattoo of um, a bunch of Hebrew writing on his chest, but also a really faded swastika. Okay. Like, (laughs) I don't know if that, I know that um, in real life, Ben Markowitz was tatted up, but I'm sure that was just an executive creative choice by the movie. But I always thought that was funny that like he has this faded swastika tattoo on his chest and the Hebrew like right next to it, like. He had made a mistake, like, oh, shit, I got to get this off. Like, <laughs> what was I thinking? I thought it was a Native American symbol. <laughs> <laughs> so the feud between Ben and Jesse James Hollywood 
began when Ben owed Jesse a $1,200 debt. I really want to hammer home the point that this all began over a $1,200 debt. Right. For weed. For weed. I know that's probably a lot of money uh, when you're 19. Maybe not for Jesse James Hollywood. Probably not for Jesse James Hollywood. But in the scheme of things of what happened, this was over a $1,200 debt. This whole fucking debacle. This was the result of a botched drug run that Ben had gone on. And Ben didn't seem to be making any efforts to pay the money back and tensions arose. So the two began leaving bitchy voicemails on each other's machines. Like really bitchy voicemails. <laughs> I like that it was voicemails on their machines. Right. This is to the year 2000. Did you get my beeper? <laughs> Actually, Jesse did have a beeper and it's part of the story. Okay. Um, so... <laughs> I mean, like, this story couldn't be more late 90s, right. early 2000s. So Ben's, Ben's messages were obviously a lot more unhinged and threatening than Jesse's messages were. Ben's messages were like, oh, I'm going to fucking kill you. Like, a lot of heavy breathing right. and sort of just, like, really creepy. And Jesse's girlfriend, Michelle Lasher, recalls being really afraid of Ben. So one night in February of 2000, Jesse and his friends were all out to dinner at a restaurant where Ben's girlfriend was working as a waitress. She also happened to be serving them that night. And instead of paying the bill, Jesse left a note on the check that said, just take this off Ben's tab. So... I like to think that it was like at the Cheesecake Factory. I really picture... like, take this $30. (laughs) Right. Well, what's funny is that in the movie... Uh, the restaurant that they're at looks like the Saddle Ranch. Oh, okay. It really looks like that, but, but that's that how I imagined been, it. Like, a Hollywood movie, yeah, too, because that's a popular, right? Uh, but I, but I do picture it kind of like a chain what? restaurant right. like that. In the movie, also, he didn't uh, Jesse James Hollywood the, that character. He didn't just say take it off Ben's tab. He said, "This is for Ben's tab, Kike." that kike's tab he called him a kike he calls ben he calls ben a kike twice in this movie um so i'm sure that was just like creatively i really really the point but what is the origin of kike (laughs) i feel like i've never looked it up like what does that mean why you gotta ask me just because i'm jewish yeah because you're jewish you know (laughs) i don't know but um one of my fantasies i've always had is if my drug dealer ex-drug dealer ever tries to get in contact with me again i'm just gonna tell him to kiss my kike dyke ass because he was a um, neo-nazi right so anyway that's an aside so ben fucking this sent him into a rage and as it should have that's very fucking rude you know um and he I found out what kike means, but I'm not going to tell you guys because it's too boring. Then just say it. It's because when Jews came on Ellis Island, they didn't. They would put a circle instead of an X when they were illiterate. And oh. the, the Yiddish word for circle is kike. That's so dumb. I don't really feel like that's a good burn now. <laughs> Desi's, Come up with a better. Desi's just going to start calling people kikes and be like, what? It's not an insult. It's historical. Well, I won't use it, but it's like, I don't find that that like, is a very good like I feel like um, neo Nazis, they're using that as if it's like a really hardcore burn. But if you think about it, I mean, I guess most it racial slurs are really stupid. I mean, they're like they're they are really dumb origin stories. I guess, yeah, I don't really. I mean, I don't know a lot about the origins. I just feel like that's not that uncommon for it to be really stupid. It's dumb. Right. It's a it really seems dumb. A little too like smart though. Like yeah, that's, they don't know. About that's the a deep Island cut. <laughs> that's a deep cut. Um, so yeah, yeah there you go. The more you know. <laughs> we learn yeah. all kinds of stuff on this show. Uh-huh. Beauty should be good for you, and that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding a light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. 
Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully, now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high-interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high-interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top-ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. So like I said, Ben was fucking pissed and he decides that he needs to retaliate. And he does this by getting Jesse, uh, trying to get Jesse busted for insurance fraud. Now, Jesse had sold parts for one of his tricked out cars, but reported the vehicle as stolen And from that point, the feud just fucking exploded. I mean, these guys are in a full-out war with each other. And in early August of 2000, Ben went over to Jesse's house in the middle of the night and smashed up a bunch of windows. And it was on. Jesse was not going to stand for this shit. He had to take it to the next level. On Saturday night, August 5th, Nick Markowitz arrived home looking pretty wasted. And he got into his fight. He got into a fight with his parents about it. Now, I want to talk about um, the Nick Markowitz IRL and the character that was portrayed in the movie Alpha Dog. Like I said before, I think they did a really good job portraying all these characters. They're all the details that are true to the real life story. A lot, most of them were really included, and as along with the characters. But I think because it's a movie, they really did work harder to make Nick Markowitz appear more angelic-like yeah. than he actually was. Right. Not that he was a bad kid or anything, He, but he was a typical teenage partied boy. And, he partied, yeah. he experimented with drugs. He wasn't... I mean, they did have this scene in the movie where Nick came in drunk mm-hmm. and he did sm- like to smoke weed in the movie, but I think because he was portrayed by... I think it was really smart casting that they... Uh, that it was um, Anton Yelchin mm-hmm. because he is he was such an angelic sweet. face, yeah. sweet kid. So even though he was doing all these sort of partying, you normal teenage thing. Him. Yeah, I mean, and his performance was really, really good in this movie as well. So Nick comes home, he's drunk. He gets into a fight with his parents, fight with his parents. He ends up leaving the house, but only for an hour. Then he comes back and his parents are like, look, let's talk about this in the morning but before his parents could talk to him nick took off at around 11 a.m on sunday august 6th at around 1 p.m nick was walking by the taxco trails park when a van approached inside the van was jesse james hollywood and members of his crew jesse rouge who was the driver and william skidmore These boys, these guys had planned to go up to Santa Barbara for Fiesta, which was a festival on State Street. Now, anyone who's been to Santa Barbara before knows it's a total fucking, it's like the ultimate cliche college party town. I mean, Santa Barbara itself is a gorgeous city, and it's just filled with drunken hot people that are 19 years old at all times. So I can only imagine that they were really excited for Fiesta, whatever this festival was. Um, and they were going to get shit faced and be obnoxious. So at around, like I said, at around 1 PM, Nick is walking by the Taxco trails park when a van approached 
um, this van approaches and the guys who are in the van, uh, uh, Jesse James Hollywood, Jesse Rouge and William Skidmore, they all get out and start chasing Nick Markowitz. Now they had originally planned to go to Ben's house. They were on their way to Ben's house to go confront him. But when they saw Nick, they really were like, this is a golden opportunity right. change of plans. So they start chasing Nick Markowitz down and beating him up. Then they threw him in the van, but little did they know that a woman named Pauline Ann Mahoney caught wind of the whole thing. She saw everything. She even got their license plate number. When the van left, Pauline called the police. And in an act of incompetence, of course, by the LAPD, the assault and kidnapping reported by Pauline was logged as just an assault and not a kidnapping in progress. So the police were not like, we need to get on this right now. Some kid just right. got thrown in a van, which is really fucking irritating. There's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of frustrating things um, in this story. That's just the first one. The boys next picked up their friend, Chris Affronti. And with Nick held captive in the back of the van, they all headed up to Santa Barbara. So these guys decide they're going to stash Nick at a friend of Jesse Rouge's house up in Hidden Valley, which is by Santa Barbara. And this guy's name was Ricky Hoflinger. <clears throat> Hoflinger? Yes. Hmm. And this guy really is a hoflinger. He's a pimp? No, but oh. just... <laughs> I just feel like that's a derogatory name, hoflinger. It could be. It's it like, sounds, sounds like a really slang. cool name for like a pimp. <laughs> He's a hoflinger. <laughs> no, this guy sucks. I fucking hate Ricky Hoflinger. Right. Well, a hoflinger would suck. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that's right. a charming thing. So... When they got there to Ricky Hoflinger's house, he's just chilling with a friend and they're probably smoking weed. Nick was then taken to Ricky's bedroom and duct tape. And Ricky was like, whoa, what's going on here? Right. Why are you duct taping a child in my house? And Jesse was like, yo, you better not fucking say anything. So Ricky and his friend bounced like they were like, I don't want no trouble. And they left the crew and a captive Nick alone at his house. Ricky would later tell the police I didn't want to know what was going on. I didn't want any involvement, which I just feel like you're a fucking dick. Right. There's literally a captive person in your house and you're like, I don't have to know about it. Yeah. I feel like I draw the line at that. <laughs> it just sucks. I don't want anyone in my house. I think I just hate him more because his name is Hoflinger. Yeah. It's just stupid. It just really what pissed a, me I mean, off. How do you even get born with such a stupid name? <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> At this point, William Skidmore and Brian Affronti were over it. They were like, dude, Jesse, we got to go back to L.A. I feel like I've hated guys like this my whole life. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. They're just always around these kind of like. Apathetic. fucking yeah. gangsters. Yeah. Who all come from relatively middle class. They were all class. upper yeah. middle class. Nobody I mean, was like, in poverty here. It's Nobody so was so irritating. These guys, I'm telling you, like this story is like resonates with me so much because like growing up in the san francisco bay area in marin county like i partied with these types of people all the right. time um i know these people i definitely think it was something that really came around in the 90s yeah and just that idea of like we want to be gangsters too you know like yeah i mean or whatever rap I don't know. gangster rap came of age in the early right, to and I think 90s. all these like middle class suburban guys started listening to that and wanting to do the same thing and having disposable income from their parents and time yeah. to kind of pursue that lifestyle but without the danger or the real struggle that that music was sort of derived from well it's sort like, of they the actually had to do this stuff and work their way yeah I mean, I mean it, it really these guys just chose it because well, it was for the cool. aesthetic of it. Yeah. And it really is the ultimate in cultural appropriation was this, <laughs> you know, I mean, white boys yeah. and white girls in the suburbs pretending to be gangsters. And look, I myself ha participated she has a grill. Look, <laughs> when I look, okay. I didn't go I didn't grow up in the hood. I grew up in upper middle class. Right. San Francisco suburbia. Um but these are the kids that were around me all the time. Um, you know, white kids who acted like this, who thought they I were really tough. I think I grew up in tough. more of a mixed environment. 
So when the white kids were sort of taking on that culture or whatever, it was more natural because we were at school. My school was never like majority white. It was yeah. always a mixture, like 50-50 almost right. because I was in New York. Right. So it seemed more natural that that stuff would rub off. Whereas in the suburbs that were primarily white, it definitely was like this appropriation they were taking on when they didn't live in that world at yeah. all. Or weren't even like in it at school. Well, I mean, that's like, it's, I mean, I don't even necessarily care. I just think it's interesting. Like it is. And I definitely, you know, when I was younger, I, you know, I grew up in a, I, I have, I'm from a multiracial family. And so I had, I consider that I had a lot of, a good amount of sensitivity towards that kind of stuff. But I still was an idiot fucking white kid right. growing up as a teenager who thought I was fucking hard yeah. just because I was doing hella drugs and listening to Mac Dre all the time. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I was a fucking idiot. I didn't get it. And um, and like I said, you know, when I got out of rehab, like the first thing I did, I saved up all this money. Like I had no money. I was broke as a joke. And the first thing I did is get gold teeth. Yeah. Because I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm about that life. I'm, right. I'm a hoe. I'm a coke hoe. And like, <laughs> I get it, you know? And it's like... I was so innocent compared to you. <laughs> Even though I did sort of bad things, I was never Yeah. Like I mean, that. I just... I wasn't hard. I was goth. <laughs> <laughs> I always say, like, ask... Any white kid from Marin County, which is where I'm from, will immediately tell you, like, with a quickness that we claim Tupac because he's from Marin County because he grew up like right. I mean Tupac we had the same English he doesn't teacher claim you guys no he doesn't claim us <laughs> rest in peace right, Tupac yeah. I love you um so anyway I I just think I, I it is important. no it is a thing it right? is a thing but but also this is part of the story mm. this is really um indicative of who these guys were um especially since all this tough guy shit was over such small fucking potatoes Right. I mean, I would love to see these people actually have to confront real fucking Compton drug dealers and stuff like that. It's so absurd. It's and this is over weed again, like I said, and it's it's like so mad at like all of these people in this story. Most of the people. So Nick was ended up being seen by both of Jesse Rouge's parents and they didn't think any of it because um, oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to say they were, they're still at Ricky Hoflinger's house. I'm sorry. I missed this part. They're still at Ricky Hoflinger's house. It's just, uh, Jesse Rouge and Nick Markowitz at this point. And they spent the next several hours hanging out, playing video games, getting drunk and smoking weed. And Nick was having a pretty good time. He knew he was captive, but he didn't want to cause any problems for his brother. So he's just like, I'm going to go along with it. I'm just going to do what these guys say and I'm going to sort of make the most of the situation. And at the end of the night, Jesse Rouge took Nick to spend the night at his dad's house, which was pretty close by to Ricky's. Mm -hmm. Now, Nick was seen at this time by both of Jesse Rouge's parents, but they didn't think anything of it. They're like, oh, he's having a friend hang out and spend the night and stay at our house. And this was the common reaction as Nick was only tied up for that first part of the day at Jesse's house. Like the duct tape came off pretty fucking quickly. This is before zip ties were popular. (laughs) Much more efficient. He was invited to smoke weed and drink and party with everyone that they brought around. And he was being a really good sport out of this. He didn't want to make any waves, like I said before. And only one of the many people that Nick would come into contact with over the next few days would think anything was odd about this situation. One person. On Sunday, August 7th, Jesse Rouge had some people over to kick it at his house. 17-year-old Natasha Adams-Young, 16-year-old Kelly Carpenter, and 17-year-old Graham Presley. After the group spent some time drinking and smoking at Jesse Rouge's house, they went to Natasha's. Jesse wound up leaving shortly after, and at one point, Nick was just left completely alone by his captors. He wasn't even with any of the original captors at this point. How long has he been there now? Uh, It's been since uh, August 6th, Saturday morning, and now it's August 7th. So it's been two days. He, Jesse, so Jesse goes somewhere. 
he um nick is just hanging out at natasha's this girl natasha's house with her friend kelly and their friend graham and nick seemed to be having a good time he was even sparking an interest in natasha and he told her that he was 17 years old even though he was 15 because he wants to get with this girl and he knew he was being held but again didn't want to cause any drama didn't say anything but Natasha knew that they were holding him. And he's like, no, no, it's cool. It's really cool. It's fine. Like, it's, you know, they're going to take me home at some point. It's okay. Like, it'll yeah. all get worked out. But Natasha was, like, kind of worried about that. So later that day, Nick was dropped back off at Jesse Rouge's house where Jesse James Hollywood was there with his girlfriend, Michelle Lasher. I want to point out also that uh, this girl, Michelle Lasher, who's portrayed by Olivia Wilde, my number one girl crush, one of my number one girl crushes, um, is uh, yeah, she's portrayed by Olivia Wilde. She actually, in real life, had a Jesse James had Jesse James tattooed on her butt. Ugh. So she was like ride or die for this guy. <laughs> die, please. <laughs> <laughs> by Tuesday, August eighth, Natasha was sensing that something was off. So she decides to go to her mom, who was a criminal defense attorney, and tell her all about Nick. But Natasha was pretty vague about the details. She didn't name names. She only said that a boy that she knew may be in trouble. And Natasha's mom was like, girl, you got to call the police now. So instead, Natasha decides to talk it over with Graham Presley first. Now, I'm just going to remind you, these are kids. These, these are 17-year-old and 16-year-old right. kids. You they're how young they are. Yeah, I mean, like, they're scared, um, but they're still making some pretty stupid fucking decisions. And Graham was like, dude, it's fine. You need to fucking relax. This kid is fine. He's having a good time. And plus, you don't want to get James, Jesse James Hollywood mad because he's crazy. Which at that point, I'm like, yeah, exactly. He's crazy. Like, you need to tell the police. So uh, then Natasha went to Jesse Rouge and was like, you, like, yo, what is really going on? Nick better be safe. And Jesse Rouge swore up and down that he was fine and that it was all going to be over soon and there was nothing to worry about. Nick wasn't going to get hurt. Everything's fine. Um, sidebar, Jesse Rouge in Alpha Dog is played by Justin Timberlake, who does a very fine job in this, well, in who this does role. He play? Justin Timberlake is, plays Jesse Rouge. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's also fun. If you watch the movie, it's fun to see, um, Justin Timberlake say cock. <laughs> I thought. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> fun fact. I just thought it was fun to see him say cock in the movie, which he does. Um, there's also Olivia Wilde, Wilde boobies in the movie, which I enjoyed very much. So Jesse Rouge is like, dude, calm down. Like you fucking stupid bitch. Like nothing's going to happen. You better not fucking say anything. And by this point, Nick Markowitz's parents were freaking out, rightfully so. They filed a police report with the LAPD and had hung missing persons posters all over town. The gang was planning at this point to release nick so to celebrate they're like let's throw a party let's throw a going away goodbye party to nick markowitz we're gonna end this it's his release party okay. literally that was their impetus for throwing this party at the lemon tree inn which was a which is a motel in santa barbara off state street i know that's motel you do yes i passed it before I, have, I know exactly where that motel is do they have lemon parties there uh i can only hope <laughs> So they're at the Lemon Tree Inn, uh, or they're going to the Lemon Tree Inn, and Graham Presley's mom, Christina Presley, even dropped the kids off there at 5.30 p.m. Like, she's on her way to a yoga class, and she's like, okay, you kids have fun. Nick's in the car, and of course, she didn't think anything of it. She's just like, oh, this is their friend, Nick. Now, uh, this mom, Christina Presley, she did know of Jesse Rouge and she knew him because she knew that her son had been hanging around him and she didn't like that they had a relationship with each other because her son had been in trouble for smoking weed in the past before and Jesse Rouge had a reputation and he was covered in tattoos and she's like you know she had had some concern in the past about him 
But at this point, you know, they're all hanging out and I guess it's fine. They're going to this motel party. My mom would have never fucking driven me to a motel. I'm just dying that I know this hotel. I feel like now I have a connection. I know. I'm so happy for <laughs> I've you. I've passed that hotel so many times where I'm like, oh, that looks kind of cute. Like, what is the lemon tree in? Like, it does not look like a skanky motel. No. It's cute. Like, it's not portrayed as skanky in the no. movie either. I mean, it's, I don't think there are many skanky hotels in Santa Barbara. No. But yeah. <clears throat> here's the thing about Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara is a very nice ritzy party town. And uh, you know, there's wineries nearby and every hotel. I mean, it's like going to Palm Springs. It's like, they really did pick the perfect alternative location to Santa Barbara in alpha dog for having Palm Springs. It's sort of like Palm Springs to the North West. Right. You know, it is that same vibe of like very wealthy people and nice houses and expensive spas and hotels. Um, and it is funny that I did spend my the last days of my drinking and using there because it is such a nice place. And I we lived on like literally the last house on the block. And it was the only house in the area that looked like a complete fucking trap house. Like this house, the house I was living in was absolutely right. falling apart and disgusting. And it, it, it stood out. It definitely stood out on the street. Um, so yeah, so there, um, so they go to the motel. So the same day, Jesse James Hollywood starts getting spooked. He doesn't know what to do with Nick at this point. He feels like he's in way too deep. And he needs to make a decision of what he's either going to release him and probably get in trouble or he's going to have to take some drastic measures here. So Jesse James Hollywood, he phones up the family lawyer, Stephen Hogg, and he goes to his house and he's all, so say, uh, say I kidnapped a kid and I'm holding him hostage. Wait, he calls the cops? No, he calls his lawyer. Oh, his lawyer. He calls the family lawyer. Got it. So this guy knows Jesse really well and he trusts him obviously they have attorney client privilege right right so he's like what would one do in this situation and Stephen Hogg's like uh you're in big trouble if this is true right you need to go to the police immediately Jesse didn't like that idea so he bounced without giving him an answer about what he was going to do and Stephen was freaking out so he calls Jesse's dad, Jack, who was like, dude, you need to get a hold of your son right now. Now, Jack Hollywood was up in Big Sur at a resort with his wife, Lori. And he was like, dude, just keep an eye on my son and make sure he doesn't do anything. And they're trying to get a hold of Jesse at this point to no avail. This is when they're paging him a shit ton of times. They're calling right. him. They're calling his girlfriend's house. No one can get in touch with Jesse James Hollywood. So Jack Hollywood then tells Stephen Hogg, the lawyer, to get in touch with a guy named John Roberts. This is a family friend with some shady connections, possibly to the mob in Chicago. Now, Jack thought if they could get John to spook Jesse and the gang and, into giving up Nick, this could all be dealt with. And they could spook Nick as well and say, you better not fucking say that there was any foul play or wrongdoing here. Let's all fucking take, get this taken care of. Now, I just want to point it out that none of these adults, Stephen, the lawyer, Jack Hollywood, or this character, John Roberts, contacted the police at any point. They were going to solve this their own way. But Jesse decided he had to do something. He wasn't going to listen to the advice of the lawyer. So Jesse contacts Ryan Hoyt. Ryan Hoyt, like we said before, was the bitch of the gang. And he told him, Jesse told Ryan that he needs him for a job that would erase his debt. And Ryan was eager to get on Jesse's good side. So he was happy to oblige with whatever Jesse was asking of him. And this sort of reminds me of in the Wonderland case when the Wonderland gang needed John Holmes to do the robbery. And John Holmes was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it, guys. Because John Holmes at that point was a total loser with no friends and had a huge debt to them. Right. Uh, you know, a uh, different kind of drug debt, but still it was the same kind of mentality of like, I just want to get on my dealer's good side. I don't want no trouble anymore. I want to move up the ranks in, in this, um, crew, have more status. So Ryan was really, Ryan's a big piece of shit. He was willing to, he didn't fucking care. He had no moral compass when it came to this. He was right. really just in it for himself and 
getting Jesse James Hollywood off his back. Jesse was, of course, asking Ryan to take care of Nick Markowitz. So Jesse gave Ryan a Tech 9, an assault rifle that had been modified by Jesse to be fully automatic. This was a killing machine. This was the same type of gun that was used in Columbine. Um, and he sends Ryan Hoyt up to the Lemon Tree Inn in Santa Barbara to do the job. Now, to establish an alibi, Jesse took his girlfriend to dinner at Outback Steakhouse in Northridge in the Valley for her 20th birthday. I wonder if they got the Blooming Onion. That was pretty popular I at the time. I liked Outback. Oh, my God. I totally liked Outback. I've only been to Outback like twice. I haven't been in a really long time. I'm sure it sucks. But I remember thinking, this is the best cheap restaurant ever at some point. Like I did, too. That's so weird. But I would get very basic things like just steak. I like, would too. You know what I mean? Like, but I it, but I thought the sides were really good, and like I feel like they had good bread there or something. I liked Outback. The only, I mean, I've only been there twice, but I I remember liking it a lot. So they're at Outback, and he's like, "I need to establish an alibi for this." Now back at the Lemon Tree, Jesse Rouge kicked everyone out at around 11 p.m., and the only people left at the motel was himself, Nick, and 17-year-old Graham Presley. Um, Ryan Hoyt arrived shortly after and, uh, Graham, uh, sorry, Ryan Hoyt arrived shortly after and had Graham drive him out to the San Ynez mountains. The drive itself wasn't that far from downtown Santa Barbara, but it was pretty, it's a pretty isolated area. If you've ever been there, um, it's off the 154 highway. So Ryan Hoyt gives Graham a shovel and is like, start digging. And Graham later said that Ryan had forced him to dig this hole because he was holding him at gunpoint with the Tech 9. Ryan denies this and says that Graham totally did it willingly. When they were done digging a shallow grave, they headed back to the Lemon Tree Inn to retrieve Nick. The boys told him, Nick, we're taking you home. And that's part one. Wow. Yeah. I'm excited. I don't really know a lot about this case, so I'm excited to hear what happens. I thought I'd leave you guys on a cliffhanger. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, luckily there, I mean, and unfortunately, but there is a lot of um, information out there on this case. There is a lot of interesting stuff that happened in the aftermath, so you're definitely going to want to stay tuned to find out the fate of Nick Markowitz and the fate of all the players involved in this case. I think Jesse James Hollywood's uh, fate is pretty interesting as well. Um, yeah. Any questions? Any comments? Yeah. I don't have any. Well, cool. I know. Um, well, cool. thank you guys for okay. listening. Thank you guys. We'll see, see you next, you next week. week. Bye. Bye.